Again, we're in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, and uh, if, you, if you don't mind, be finding that in your Bibles, and uh, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to overlap over a couple uh, verses from last week, and uh, then take on some new ones that we didn't get to last week. So we'll actually begin our reading in verse 9. And our initial reading will be down to verse 15, and then we will go on from there later in the message. So verses 9 to 15, Colossians chapter 2, if you've got that, say amen. 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 And uh, so this is what it says. For in him, speaking of Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Has he quickened together, that means made alive, together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Verse 15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. I've titled the message tonight, Jesus is all you need. Jesus is all you need. You may be seated. Now, last week, uh, really this is, uh, you could almost say it's a part two. Last week, we talked about don't make things complicated. This week, we're going to talk about Jesus is all you need. And as you recall, uh, we began discussing what's known as the Colossian heresy, which was a combination, a mixture of various philosophies and isms. You remember that? And as I said, chapter 2 is where he really gets into these issues. We started looking at some of those, but we didn't get all the way through the chapter. So just by way of uh, refreshing your memory, uh, if you remember, the Colossian heresy consisted of Gnosticism. You remember that? Denying the deity of Christ, among other things. Humanism, which was the man-centered approach to thing. Man is the one who's uh, the answer to all of his problems, so they think. Then we have legalism, which they add to salvation. They want to include circumcision, feast days, and this and that. They, Like I said, they're mathematicians. They say Jesus plus this or minus that equals salvation. Those legalists are mathematicians. Then you have mysticism. We'll find that there were people worshiping angels. They were worshiping angels and other spiritual experiences. And then finally, asceticism, which is self-deprivation in order that you might be greater spiritually or morally, that somehow depriving your flesh is going to make you holier or better uh, by doing that. Now, these are the primary things that are being addressed in this chapter two, and parts of them show up at different places. Gnosticism seems to be a reoccurring issue uh, that happens over and over, and really that uh, that was an issue with the early church. It developed 
developed into more of an issue as time went on. So it's so important that, uh, that this epistle to the Colossians really hits that stuff head on because that's something that was prevalent in that day. Now, you remember that Paul began to warn them against enticing words. Remember, he talked about that, not to be victimized by the false teachers, those smooth-talking uh, false teachers that you see on TV back there uh, way back 2,000 years ago. They didn't have cable, but they had some similar, maybe some cousins of some of the ones that are on TV these days or something. Uh, and then, uh, of course, he began to talk about humanism, that man-centered philosophy. Remember, we got into a little bit of that. And uh, he warned them about getting caught up in the traditions of men, the worldly wisdom, all these things, uh, which we still see these, these things today, don't we? There's man, man's not anything new. They, keep, they, they continue to repeat the same things, the same sinful hearts. They just dream up uh, another way to repackage the same old heresies, it seems like, sometimes. You can see a lot of these things that he's attacking back then that pops up even in our day. And uh, so he warns him about these things and those empty words. Uh, remember those great, big, swelling, empty words like the guy that talked for 30 minutes and somebody walked up and they said, well, he hasn't said what he's talking about yet. That kind of stuff. And uh, so if you remember... Also, he began to give them some things that he wanted them to do to safeguard them. You remember that that was, that their hearts would be comforted. Remember that uh, they wouldn't be alarmed by these false teachings that were coming into the church. Remember how he talked about, I want you to be knit together in love. That's needed then. It's needed today in the church to be knit together in love. He talked about them having the full assurance that comes with the understanding of who Jesus is. He talked about them acknowledging the mystery of God, which is Christ incarnating the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He talked about how in Christ is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything that you need is found in Jesus. He talked about being rooted in Christ. Remember, he gave the analogy of the trees and then also being built in Jesus, the analogy of the buildings. And not only that, but to be established in the faith and grow in grace and thankfulness. But what was the number one thing that he stressed to them? As you have received Christ, walk in that. The simplicity of your faith in Jesus Christ was paramount to him. He wanted them to recognize that fact that is true, that every believer is complete in Jesus Christ. That was the main thing that he wanted them to get because if they would stick to the simplicity of Jesus and not make things complicated, then things were gonna go a whole lot better. So now we're gonna pick up really, you could say this is part two. I just wanted to give you that overview because now we're continuing on into some of these other things in this chapter. So uh, the first thing I want to do is say that nothing can be added to the work of Christ. Just briefly to touch on that scripture, verse 10 says, you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now listen, when you were born again, you were joined to Christ. You were joined him. There was a union that took place with Jesus. When you were born again, there was a joining. There was a union. Um, the Bible talks in verse 27 of chapter 1. It says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 10, it talks about that we are complete 
in him. So we see Christ in us and us in him. There is a union that takes place and from that union flows all the blessings that are secured in Christ Jesus. Us in him, him in us. There's a union, there's a joining there. Jesus said it like this in John 15. I am the vine and you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, there it is again, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So Jesus was giving that clear, that clear message to, uh, to, the, to us through the scripture saying, if you abide in me and I'm in you, then you're going to have the source and from me is going to flow everything you need. That union, that joint that happened when you trusted Christ is where you're going to get all the blessings that are secured in Christ Jesus. So in Christ... Him, uh, us in him, and him in us is paramount, and it's something that's true about every believer. We are joined to Jesus Christ. So he wants to make that very clear in these passages that we've already read, and Paul continues to build upon who Jesus is and, and what he's done and how it applies to us. And here again, he's saying, listen, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory, you in Christ, you've got it made, Colossian believers. You've got it made, Ozark Full Gospel Church when you've got Jesus. Now, I want to say this. Our union with Christ is sufficient. Because we have that union, it's sufficient. And he's going to use this to answer these legalists that want to add things to it. So Paul's going to use this union and show that because of this union, we're perfectly, it's perfectly sufficient. We don't need to add anything else to it. He said it by saying we're complete in him, but now he's going to build upon that. So uh, the legalists, as you know, they want to add to salvation or add things for holiness. They want to add works for righteousness. They command others, do this and don't do that. Why? Because I said so. That's what the legalist does. It's their rules, you better follow them. That's what the legalist wants to do. He wants to put things on you and say, listen, uh, this is the way you gotta do it. Uh, no good reason other than I think you ought to do it that way. Now, Jesus ran into uh, some of these professional legalists in his day. They were known as the scribes and Pharisees. They were professionals at this. And look over in Mark chapter 7, verses 5 and 7, at his interaction with some of these legalists. Listen to what he says. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the traditions of the elders? But eat bread with unwashed hands. Whoa. And he answered and said unto them, You big baby, get over it. No, he didn't say that. Let me get back. Let me see, let's see what he said, actually. Well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. His was a little stronger than mine. As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. 
So Jesus said, you're coming at us. You're trying to put your regulations and your rules on me. How about you get over it? Because you're teaching for commandments and doctrines of men. You're coming at us with rules that you have brought along, and you're trying to put them on me, and it's not from God. It's from your own mind. And so he's saying, how about this? How about you get over it? Because it's not even real. You're a hypocrite. You're just trying to do these things as a show. That's what he's saying. Saying you're trying to do these as a show. So the emphasis of legalists is they want to put on traditions. Oh, we've always done it that way. You must do it that way. They want to bring people into bondage, right? They want to put things on you. They want to bring people into bondage. They burden others with heavy burdens that are unnecessary. They put these weights on you and say, you've got to do it like this. Now, one of the issues that was being wrongly taught in, in the Colossian church with these false teachers was the issue of circumcision. Now, that was given to Abraham, I believe, in uh, Genesis chapter 17, and it was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign of the covenant, and it says, uh, from that point on, uh, the man in his household on the eighth day would be circumcised. I don't have to explain to you what that is. I think you all know that. So the legalists of that day insisted that the Gentile believers also be circumcised. They claimed this is necessary. You've got to have Jesus and you've got to be circumcised like was laid out for Abraham and the people of Israel. You've got to do both. And uh, so that made them a little nervous, I think. And uh, so these people are known as the Judaizers. You will hear that term. Uh, he dealt with it a lot in Galatians. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can read the book of Galatians and see his response there. But Paul gives an answer. So he's going to take our union with Christ, and he's going to give an answer to these guys. Uh, and it's going to answer this question for them. They've got this rule they want to add on to it. And so Paul is going to uh, show them something else. He says, uh, I want you to notice that the believer has been spiritually circumcised. Spiritually circumcised. Look at verse 11. In whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Without hands. It's talking about spiritual here. In the body, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Notice, first of all, the phrase, in whom, at the very start of verse 11. So, since we are joined to Jesus, we also share in his righteousness. We are identified with Jesus. Now, there is a spiritual circumcision, and there's also the physical circumcision, okay? Now, the real one is that of the heart, the spiritual. That's the one that matters. The outward signified the inward. The outward testified of what was already inward. Now, let me show you something in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, because this is clearly demonstrated in the Old Testament even. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart 
spiritual. And the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. So he's pointing to the fact that this is a heart issue. This is a spiritual thing. It is an inward issue, the spiritual cleansing. John MacArthur said it like this. Circumcision symbolized man's need for cleansing of the heart and was the outward sign of that cleansing of sin that comes by faith in God. So circumcision of the heart, it's, of, it's about cleansing. Remember, the heart of man is desperately wicked. The flesh of man is desperately wicked, and so it has to be removed. And so Paul also talks about this in Romans, this very thing. Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Listen to what he says. And he speaking of Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Did you see that? It's a sign of the faith which he had, before he was circumcised. So it's saying the issue was not in the sign, but in the heart. That's the main thing, is the heart. So now listen to this. When you are born again, there is a spiritual circumcision that happens. Male or female, doesn't matter. We're talking about the heart issue here. We're talking about the filthiness of the flesh. So when you are born again, there is a spiritual circumcision that happens. It's of the heart. It's like our verse says. It says in verse 11, the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. It's putting away the flesh, cutting the flesh away, and you begin living as a new creature in Christ Jesus. It's not a work of man, it's made without hands. It's the work of God in the heart of a person. It's the cutting away of the flesh, living to the Spirit of God in the new life, in the new covenant, in the new joys that God has given us through faith in the cross of Calvary. That's what it means. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about. Now he's going to go on in another way. He's going to show how our union uh, with Christ is sufficient. And now he's going to go on to baptism. We are identified with Christ in baptism. Now again, there is a spiritual baptism and there is a physical water baptism, right? The spirit baptism, again, is what really matters, The spiritual is what really matters. The outward testifies of the already accomplished inward transformation. Just like he was demonstrating a moment ago with the spiritual circumcision, now he's going to demonstrate in another way how our union with Christ is sufficient. And he's doing it through baptism. Look at verse 12. Buried with him 
in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Salvation is the work of God who has raised him from the dead. When we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. We are baptized into Jesus. And from that moment, we are identified and joined to him. So the Holy Spirit takes us and puts us in to the body of Christ. We are baptized into Jesus. And when we are, we are identified with him. Here's the verse that's going to make that clear to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, that's Jesus, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free and have been all made to drink into one spirit. So that's clearly showing that we are all baptized by the Holy Spirit at conversion into the body of Christ, into Jesus. Thereby, we are identified with Christ. We are joined to Christ. There is that union that I talked about. And from that union flows all all the blessings that Christ has secured. Do you follow that so far? So what does that mean since we're joined to Christ? Well, that means we were crucified with Christ. His crucifixion is ours. His death is ours. His burial is our burial. His resurrection is our resurrection. Where he goes, we go. What he accomplished, we enjoy. His victory is our victory. His life is our life. What Christ accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection is ours the moment that we trust Christ. All that we ever have needed is secure in Jesus Christ alone. There is nothing to add. We are perfectly complete in him. That's what happens with our union with Christ. Now, if you want an outward ceremony that marks that inward action that has taken place, it's called water baptism. Water baptism doesn't illustrate circumcision. It answers it. That's what today we do that greater, which is water baptism, symbolizing that already accomplished inward work where we were identified with Christ, buried under the water in his death and risen in newness of life. That's what water baptism is symbolizing, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So then when we go out and we go into the waters of baptism, we say, yes, the Holy Spirit has already baptized me into Jesus. Jesus. And because I'm in Jesus, when he rose again from the grave, I rose with him. And I'm in the water to tell everybody I believe it, and that's true. It's a testimony. It's a sign of something that's already happened inside. And what matters is the N-word. That's what really matters. That's what happens when we are baptized. It is the outward testimony of what has already taken place in the heart by faith. You know the scripture, by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No ceremony, no outward ceremony will ever, ever save anyone. 
This is a heart issue. He demonstrated that when he talked about circumcision. Now he demonstrates that through baptism. And the whole point of the idea that he's getting across is our union with Christ is sufficient and we are complete. Amen? Through Christ, we pass from death to life. Look at verse 13. And you, there's one of those finger-pointing verses again. Being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning you're holy and completely depraved and not uh, serving God, has he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, our condition could not have been worse. Dead. Uh, not just sick. You hear people describe Sinners in different ways, their brokenness and their, their troubled or different things. The fact of the matter is sinners are holy and completely dead. There's no life in them, none. They're not just troubled or broken, they're dead. And our condition could not have been any worse because not only that, we're dead in our sins and there's no worse place to be than dead in your sins because you will have to face God. So we're alienated from God, enemies of God, altogether hopeless and fully depraved, but God called our name. God called our name, and through Christ, we've been made alive and forgiven of our sins. Ephesians chapter two, verses four and five says it like this. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, quickened us together with Christ by grace you are saved it is a work of God when you were dead in sin but God when you were fully depraved but God when you had no hope but God who is rich in mercy called you out of death and into life only God can raise the dead only God can do that and I thought of this just as Jesus was standing outside of the silent tomb of Lazarus. So he stood outside the silent tomb of mine. But when the Savior called, the dead came to life. When the Savior called, the dead come out of the grave because the Savior called and the Savior has the power to quicken you and bring you to life. Hallelujah. Jesus called and he forgave me of all my sins and gave me life. Now watch this. Through Christ, we are no longer condemned. So he called us to life. We passed from death to life through him, and now we're no longer condemned. Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, this is a legal transaction that's happening. There's a sequence of events that happens that take place, and the result is us being made alive. That's what's happening in these. And I'll get back to that here in just a moment in a way that I think makes it very clear to you. But before Christ, we were condemned by the law. It says in verse 14 that there was the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. Uh, we can never keep God's law. 
We never could. We've all broken God's law. In fact, the language of the law has condemned every single one of us. Uh, we've all broken his law and we're guilty before the living God. Think about it like this. When a prosecutor prepares to file charges, they're going to look at the statute and they're going to look at the facts of the case and then they're going to look at the elements of the crime and do the facts of the case, meet the elements of the crime, and if they do, then charges are filed, right? They look at the statute, the handwriting says, if you do this, if you do this and or this, then you have committed said violation. And so when they look at that, they say, the, the, the body of evidence, this is what happened. Well, here's the statute. It, does what happened match the elements of the crime? It does. Okay, charges are filed. Well, what happens is when the facts of our life are reviewed in the light of God's law and the handwriting of his ordinance in God's law, we are clearly condemned. The accuser can accuse, and we are guilty as charged, right? So we're under the penalty of that law, right? But we have an advocate. We have an advocate in Christ Jesus. If any man sin, we have an advocate. So the handwriting of our debt has been blotted out. Watch this. Verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. Yes, we've sinned. Yes, we're condemned. The multitude of our sins has amounted to an indictment worthy of death. The soul that sins shall die. That's what the Bible says. But Christ has taken that note of debt. He's taken that debt, which our name is signed to, which says this is the one who has offended the laws of God, and this is the debt which he owes, which is death, and he blotted out the language that condemned us, thereby canceling our debt. The debt has been paid in full. Now watch this, the last part of verse 14. He took it out of the way. Nailing it to his cross. He took it out of the way, meaning he set it aside. As a judge can take that and set it aside. He set it aside, but not only that, he took it and he nailed it to his cross. Jesus blotted out the handwriting of the debt, and then he took that indictment and he nailed all of our sins to the cross. Uh, when the criminal was crucified in, in that day, their charges were nailed to the cross with them, right? So when Jesus was crucified, those that passed by, they saw this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's what they saw up above Jesus. But when God looked down to that cross, he saw his law. He saw his ordinances. He saw those things that were opposed to us. Why? Not because Jesus broke them, but because we did. When God looked at the cross, he saw the laws that we broke. He saw the ordinances that we had offended. He saw the debts that we had accrued because on that cross, Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin. He was taking our sin on that cross. He bore the full wrath of God. He bore all of the wrath of God for the whole world. He bled and died for us. And right before he died, he said those three beautiful words, 
words, it is finished. Meaning the debt is paid. So you say, well, how did we get from death to life? I seen, I seen a, a minister by the name of John Piper demonstrate this, and I thought it was great. Watch this. Look at verses 13 and 14. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together or made alive with him? So we see there's, we're dead, and then we're made alive. So let's ask a question. How did he do that? Read the next line. He forgave all your trespasses. Well, how did he do that? He blotted out the handwriting of the ordinance that was against us, that was contrary to us. Well, how did he do that? He took it out of the way. How did he do that? He nailed it to his cross. Hallelujah. (laughs) Hallelujah. Isn't that cool? You can take that scripture right there and just ask those questions. Well, how did he, you can start from that. He made us alive. Well, how did he do that? Well, how did he do that? And you go down through that and you can see that sequence of events that happened, that legal proceeding that happened that ultimately brought us from the place where we're dead in trespasses and sin to where finally he nailed it to his cross. He took it out of the way. He blotted out the handwriting of the ordinances so that he could forgive us, so that he could make us alive. Amen. When I heard that, I was like, I've got to repeat that because it's worth repeating. I love that. And so because of this, because we're no longer condemned, we can look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and we can say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. No condemnation. We're no longer condemned. Isn't that good? I like that. I like that. That's good. Now, I want you to notice this. Victory has been won. Christ is triumphant. Victory is won. Christ is triumphant. Look at verse 15. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So the cross disarmed the power of darkness And it assures the ultimate defeat of death and the devil. It assures that, and not only that, his little minions that help him out, terrorizing people today, his fallen angels. So we're condemned, but now through the cross, we're justified. We've been declared judicially righteous in the sight of God because we're joined to Christ, right? We were in bondage, but now we're free. We owed a debt, but the debt has been paid. We were dead, but now we're alive. The kingdom of darkness had to let us go because the king of glory set us free. (laughs) At the cross, Jesus defeated our number one enemy, and he allowed death to take hold of him so that he could take hold of death for us. That's what happened. The book of Hebrews makes that clear. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death 
He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them, that's us, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In every person, in every human, there's that, there's that inward desire that says, I don't want to die. There's that foreboding sense of fear that someday you, you're going to die. That's the facts of life. That all your life, you're haunted by those things. And so the Bible says that Jesus went and through death, he defeated the one who had the uh, power of death. That's the devil. And through that, he's going to deliver us. So that one day, he's going to take hold of that old serpent, the devil, and, and death itself, and cast it into the lake of fire. His days are numbered. Yes, he's still loose today, but not for long. <laughs> not for long. So I thought about this. The powers of darkness, they must have been rejoicing when Jesus was on the cross. They must have loved the suffering of Christ. To see him agonize must have brought him joy. They must have thought, we're winning this thing. They must have thought, we're winning. We're winning. But what, like, what looked like victory to the powers of darkness, it assured death to the devil and freedom to all those who were bound. What looked like a victory to those powers of darkness actually was their death. It was, it was going to be their death, their ultimate demise. What they thought, we're winning, we're winning. All the while, they're killing themselves. <laughs> Verse 15 says that he made a show of them openly. Can you think about this? That while they're rejoicing over Christ dying on the cross, that lifted up between heaven and earth, that the voice of Jesus echoed throughout all of time and eternity, and he spoke those words we said earlier when he said, it is finished, the debt is paid, the power of darkness was broken, the work was finished, the debt was paid, and the reign of sin and death was over for all those that trust in Christ. He was making a show of them openly. He was going to do even more than that in just a moment. He says that he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. You think about that on the third day, Jesus Christ did not stay in that tomb, but he got up and he rose again from the grave because it was not possible that death could hold him. And the king of glory rose in glory. And when he did, he was saying, hey, all you powers of darkness, hey, all you that thought you had me down, you lost, I win, I'm victorious, and you're under my foot now. He was saying the victory has come. He was saying the Lamb of God has prevailed. He was saying the battle is over. Sin is defeated. The devil is defeated. Death is defeated. I have won the victory. You know, in the Roman days, they had what was called a triumph. When a general would win a significant battle or conquer a nation, they had a special gate that he would come through. And with him, he's riding in his chariot, wearing his, I believe they call it a laurel crown. 
And as he's riding into town, he has his conquered foes behind him, the kings or the generals of the place that he just conquered. And he rides through town, or sometimes even those that he's freed from captivity in some place. And so he's riding through town, triumphant, and going through the streets, displaying how he has conquered this enemy that's being uh, carried behind him, and he's shelling off the gold and the silver and all the things that he won. And in the same way, when Christ arose from the grave, he was triumphing over the powers of darkness. He brought with him those enemies that he had defeated where he said death is defeated. He said hell is defeated. The powers of darkness are defeated. And he come out holding his hands high and he said I am he which liveth and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I hold the keys of death and of hell. That's my spoils. That's what I've conquered and I've done it for you. That's a triumph. That's a triumph. That's what it looks like, triumphing over them. And he publicly humiliated every one of those powers of darkness. <laughs> That's good. So in light of that, uh, Jesus is all you need. <laughs> I don't need notes for that one. Jesus is all you need. In light of all those things, that's what he's getting across in this book of Colossians, really. Over and over, he said, well, you don't understand Jesus this way? Let me explain that to you. You don't understand him that way? Let me explain that to you. You don't understand what he's done for you here? Let me explain what he's done for you there. Over and over, he's saying, you need to take another, another angle, another look at Jesus, and every time you do, you're going to find more treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and you're going to see more incredible things that Jesus has done. Every time you turn and get another look at him, you say, wow, can you believe all the things that Jesus has done for me? That's the high view of Christ that Paul wanted them to have so that they could combat these false teachers. Because of the cross, every sinner can be saved. Every captive can go free. Every oppressed person can have peace. Christ is triumphant. He's victorious. I love that. So that brings me to the next part. Don't be condemned by legalists. In light of all these things, don't be condemned by legalists. Remember, these guys want to pile stuff on you. Don't let them do it. That's what he's saying. Don't let them do it. Look at verse 16 and 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Paul was saying, don't be condemned by these legalists. Don't let them add things to salvation. They're going to want to try to do some tricky math with you, but don't let them do it. Don't let them add things. Don't let them subtract things. Don't let them complicate your life. Remember, that was the message he was already giving to them. He was saying to them, Jesus is all you need. Jesus is what you need to focus on. Don't let them judge you in what you're eating or what you're drinking or of your holy days or of your new moons or of your Sabbath. These things are shadows. We have the substance. Christ is here. 
Why go back to shadows when you have the person? That's what he's saying. The ceremonial laws, these these dietary restrictions, they don't apply. They were shadows, types and shadows of Christ. Now that he has come, embrace Jesus, not the shadows. When you walked in the building tonight and Jerry was at the front door, wouldn't you think it's strange if you walked in and Jerry got down on the ground and tried to shake the hand of your shadow? You would say, Jerry, stop being weird. I'm right here. Shake my hand. That's what he's, he's saying to these guys. If you're doing these things, these, if you're going back to the shadows, if you're going back to the types and the ceremonies and, the, and all this stuff, you're being weird. The real thing's here. Jesus is here. Embrace him. Love him. Accept all the wonderful things he's done for you. Just let all those things go because he's fulfilled them all. Everything that you need is found completely in Christ. Don't let people put these things back on you. If a Christian wants to follow those things, fine. Go ahead but you don't have to. You really don't have to. Some people would say, what about the Sabbath? Well, Jesus is my Sabbath. The Sabbath was about rest. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus said that he is Lord of the Sabbath. So since I'm identified with Christ and he's fulfilled all these things for me, then I feel perfectly complete and I don't need to practice all these traditions and ceremonies and all these things to try to be righteous in some way because it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's it. Why make things complicated? You don't have to do that. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, he says, every creature of God is good. Nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. He's saying, take your food, thank God for it, pray over it, and go have a ham sandwich if you want one. It's going to be all right. That's what he's saying. It's all all been taken care of. So now we come to uh, a warning against mysticism, and we'll get this wrapped up here pretty quick and let you guys go. Verses 18 and 19. Let no man beguile you, rob you of your reward in voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, speaking of Jesus, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. Paul warned that if you get into this weird mystical stuff, like the Gnostics were teaching about all these emanations and these mediators between God and man. Some of these, it says, uh, it talks about a voluntary humility that's talking about a false humility. Some of them said, I'm so humble... <laughs> That, that statement alone automatically. But they'll say, I, I'm so humble that I'm worshiping an angel because God is so holy and I'm too humble to go straight to him, so I'm going to worship one of these in-betweens. What? That's foolishness. Not to mention there's no in-betweens. We learned that way back in chapter one, Christ is supreme, he's it, he's everything, king of kings, lord of lords, totally supreme. 
But these guys, these mystics, they always had these uh, wild visions and wild dreams, and they had these new revelations, and they, they were seeing angels, and they were talking to angels, and, and they were having all these wild things. And Paul says uh, they're worshiping angels, and they're intruding into things that they have not seen. They're not real. That's what he's saying. They're puffed up in their mind. He said their fleshly mind is dreaming these things up and they're getting into it and they're going after these experiences and they're getting away from Christ. They're getting away from the head, from where all things flow. They're getting away from the head that's going to nourish you, that's going to give you the strength, the one that you need to focus on. And they're getting off on these things like angels and mystical visions and all these other weird things, whatever they can dream up with, whatever somebody said to them. And Paul said, hey, no, don't get caught up in that. These people, many of these people, they're just puffed up in their, in their fleshly noggin and they're imagining these things and they're not even real. It's just, uh, it's just a, a figment of their imagination. Don't get caught up in that. Get back to the head. Get back to Christ. Get back to the one from whom all blessings flow. Get back to the one who's gonna give you the strength. Get back to the one who's the real deal, who's come and in whom you are complete. Get back to him. That's where you're gonna find the wisdom and the knowledge and the revelation and the joys is in Christ. Am I saying that God can't give people visions and, and things like that? That's not what I'm saying. I think you understand these are nutty people coming up with nutty things, trying to convince people that they're real. And if anybody will believe them, they'll build on that foundation of whatever somebody believed, and they'll make that story bigger and bigger and grander and greater. It's a false teacher. It's a scheme of false teachers. It's something that happens. Let me tell you this. If you stay close to Christ and his word, you're never going to go wrong. Don't chase after every wind of doctrine, strange new ideas. Don't go after, you know, some angel showed up and gave me some kind of old book he found out back behind Target, and you need to read that because it's the new revelation. Hey, you, I mean, we laugh about that, but that's the kind of things I'm talking about. Really kooky, weird stuff. God can still talk to us. He does supernatural things. I believe that 100% that God does incredible, wonderful power things by his Holy Spirit. I think you understand what I'm saying. Stay close to the word of God and to Christ. If it doesn't support it, then don't go after it. If the word of God is in an agreement with it, don't go after it. Leave it alone and get away from it. Go back to the head, which is Christ. So he gives a warning against asceticism and legalism. These two things kind of join together, the self-deprivation along with the legalistic ideas. Look at verse 20 through 23. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, that's the basic things, the ABCs of the world. Why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? So his question is, if you are dead with Christ, why are you subject to ordinances? Verse 21, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show, that's a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. So he's saying, if you're dead in Christ, why are you subject to ordinance? It, since you have a new life in Christ, 
Why are you going back to pre-cross living? Since you've come to the cross, you've been identified with Christ, you have the head, you have the source, why are you going back to the basic ABC things of the world like you lived before you came to Jesus? That's what he's saying. Why are you doing these things? Why, why are you going there? The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So since you're a new creature in Christ, why would you go back to the old things? Why would you go back there? Why would you go back to those basic things? Now, asceticism might appear spiritual, but it's not. It's not. Asceticism might appear spiritual. Now, remember, these are those people that believe you can deprive yourself of things and you can beat your flesh into submission and thereby become more righteous and more holy. That's what the the ascetics say. Boy, if you beat yourself down just the right way, you're going to be real super holy. And Paul says, no. It might have a, a show of these things. It might appear spiritual. It might look good on the surface for a minute. But you're getting off base. You're getting off base. Look again at verse 21. Touch not, taste not, handle not, (laughs) which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. There it is again. It's something from men. Which things have a show of wisdom. It looks nice in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body. There it is. Not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Asceticism can take on many forms. In extreme cases, there are people I mentioned that will whip their backs. They'll actually inflict pain and they'll whip their backs because they're getting their flesh into submission. I'm getting holier. Another stripe. I'm getting holier. Woo! That one was really super making me holier. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, You have people that wear clothes that have nails in them. They'll wear them around their their upper thighs, shirts. So when they move around, they get pricked in their skin to remind them to get away from the flesh. Flesh is bad. Nails good, apparently. Uh, Nailed it. Yeah, there you go. Uh, You have others that have gone off into isolation totally depriving themselves of every kind of uh, fellowship with, with any kind of human being. They go off and they crawl in a cave. It's like I said last week, Vance Havner used to say, crawling into a hole never made anyone any holier. And that's still true. You have people that go off in these places and they do these kind of things. And all of it, you know, people sleep on hard floors because someone else doesn't have a bed somewhere. So if I'm going to be righteous and right with God, I've got to sleep on a hardwood floor too. Weird stuff. Religious ideas can get weird. You're going to see asceticism take many forms in many ways. You're going to see legalism come along with it that says, I've got a great idea because it's mine. You must do it. Therefore, if you don't, you're not holy. Now go beat yourself up. 50 lashes and the Lord will accept you finally. That kind of stuff. Weird. Weird stuff. Not necessary. Uh, I say that, and Chris, you can go ahead and come up and get ready to bring a song. We're going to wrap this thing up. I say that because I think today there are people in the body of Christ that are simply too hard on themselves. 
they're just really too hard. There are people that say you got to wear your hair a certain way, don't do this, wear that, be here at this time, do this thing, don't do that thing. All the stuff we've been talking about, right? We can see that going on today. And some people are just really too hard on themselves. And I think Paul's best advice to them would be, don't make it complicated. Jesus is all you need. Paul would say, that's it. And if they read the book of Colossians and they get all this stuff ingrained into their heart, realize that really Jesus is sufficient. Oh, what a peaceful life you can lead. When you don't have all these things piled on you, oh, how peaceful it can be. So that's the, that's the call for you. Set your eyes on Jesus. Focus on your identity in Christ. Remember, in Christ, your union with him. All that he's accomplished is yours, remember? Nothing can be added. Nothing should be added. He's complete. Therefore, you are complete in him. You can rest in him. You can be at peace in him because Jesus has done everything. Don't make it complicated. He's all you need. You'll say, well, what about people that get into sin or they're doing this stuff? Listen, a true born-again child of God has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. One of the things he does is convict you of sin. Don't you think that he's able to do that? I worry about sometimes false converts that become Christianized when they've never had the real work of Christ in their life. They are converted, and then they're discipled, and they just make a very, uh, a very polished example of a phony Christian, when in the end they're still not right with God. If you've never been born again, that's step one. If you have been born again, look to Jesus, and that settles it. Stand with me tonight. We're going to give an invitation Chris, go ahead. So the altar call to you is you can pray down here if you want or you can come forward. The altar call is, do I see myself in any of these places? If I do, ask the Holy Spirit to show you, to lift this burden off of you, that you can enjoy that peace finally.